0: Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Peter Stanley from the University of New South Wales, Canberra, at the Australian Defence Force Academy. The 1951 classic film, The African Queen, starring Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, tells the improbable story of the couple's efforts to sink the German gunboat Königin Louisa on the Ulanga River in East Africa during World War I. Well, in this episode of Australian Naval History, we want to discuss the real East African campaign and the role the small Australian cruiser HMAS Pioneer played in it. To talk about this little-known chapter in Australian naval history, I'm joined by two speakers, and we're speaking online because we're still in the middle of the coronavirus crisis and we're all sitting remotely, so please excuse any technical glitches. Our experts today are Lieutenant Tim Doebler of the Federal German Navy, who's on the staff at his Navy's Naval Academy. Tim is also a naval historian who has participated in a number of our episodes, and also Dr. Richard Dunley, one of my colleagues at UNSW Canberra, who lectures on naval history, and he's the author of Britain and the Mine, 1900 to 1915, Culture, Strategy and International Law, published in 2018. Welcome, Tim and Richard. Um, First, Tim, uh, can you tell us why German forces were in East Africa in 1914 and what sort of forces were there?
1: In 1885 the German colonist Karl Peters secured parts of Tanzania in Rwanda as a German colony later known as German East Africa. Um, in 1914 there were living about 7 million uh, people uh, in the colony but uh, there were only 4000 Germans at all. Most of them were farmers and colonial officials or members of the armed forces prior to the uh, colonial uh, prior to the war The colonial troops had a regular strength of about 2,500 men, most of whom were African troops led by German officers and non-commissioned officers. At the outbreak of the war, this number was doubled um, as the colonial police force was integrated into the colonial force and a number of volunteers were recruited as well. To this fighting force came a considerable number of African carriers and laborers which led to an overall strength strength of around 14,000 men so here we have a force of mostly african troops led by german uh, officers and
0: uh, non-commissioned officers thank you and and really you've just described the genesis of the whole east african campaign uh, richard dunley what british empire forces were present to counter the troops that uh, tim has just told us about
2: so Firstly, thanks for for having me on. Um, So in terms of of land forces, you've got uh, British East Africa, which is modern day uh, Kenya, and then sort of slightly inland, you've got uh, Uganda, um, which is obviously still Uganda. Um, And in terms of land forces in what is a a vast area, there were only two and a half battalions of King's African rifles. So a really, really small um, sort of land force. In, in the region. Um, most of these were actually at the time stationed on the northern border because there was unrest which was coming over the border from Sudan and Somaliland. So uh, this very small force was already occupied elsewhere. The, the real concern for the British was, as, as Tim's pointed out, there was actually a reasonably large German sort of military force, but also the um, the sort of strategic setup in in British East Africa at the time uh, was was very vulnerable. That the the most important um, sort of communications artery, which was the main railway line that la- ran from from Lake Nyasa to Mombasa, which was the, the main port, um, this railway line was only about fifty miles over the border from um, from the, the German sort of German East Africa, and this meant that the British were very concerned, particularly about raids, more than than an actual full-scale invasion. So in terms of land forces, there was very little um, in in the region, and uh, the British position strategically was was relatively weak. Um, On the naval side, East Africa fell under the the Cape Station, which was uh, under the command of, of Admiral Herbert King Hall, and there were three old um, light cruisers as, as part of the cape station hyacinth which was the flagship uh, was a six inch gun cruiser and then there were uh, the astria and the pegasus both of which were were sort of uh, smaller smaller vessels all of these all three of these cruisers were very old by the standards of the day uh, hyacinth was the most recent commissioned in 1900 but the, the revolution in naval technology that had taken place since then meant that that all of these vessels were effectively obsolete. Um, I will also mention briefly that on the East Indies station because East Africa kind of fell in between the the Cape and the East Indies station, and and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but there was a slightly stronger force of the old pre-dreadnought battleship, Swiftshire, um, and two light cruisers, including a modern town-class cruiser um, similar to to HMAS Sydney, um, HMS Dartmouth. Um, so this, that was the the, the more powerful force in, in the region.
0: Thanks, Richard. Now, Tim Durbler, the German colonial forces in East Africa are led by Lieutenant Colonel Paul von Leto Vorbeck, the uh, legendary guerrilla commander. Can you tell us something of him and what his strategy in East Africa was? Well,
1: Lieutenant Colonel Paul von Leto Vorbeck was born in 1870 as the son of a Prussian general. Uh, he joined the cadet force in 1881 and attended several um, military um, boarding schools. After graduating, he was commissioned into the Imperial Army in 1890 and took his first um, appointment in the 4th uh, Foot Guard in Potsdam, one of the uh, guarding uh, guard re- regiments of the German Emperor. Um, there he served for a couple of years before he joined the um, general, uh, great general staff. And in 1900, he volunteered for service in the German Expeditionary Force countering the Boxer Rebellion in China. But there he saw, mostly saw service um, in the Allied staff in Beijing, where he organized the supply transports for the uh, Allied forces three years after his return from china he volunteered for a second uh, time for colonial service in 1904 this time he uh, as a reinforcement for the colonial war in the german colony of uh, southwest africa nowadays known as namibia Um, there he was assigned uh, again to the staff of the force and was responsible for personnel matters and um was the officer in charge for the war diary. Um, At the Battle of Waterberg, he finally saw active fighting service because at one stage of the battle, the staff had to reinforce the rifle companies. Reason for that was that the indigenous Herero fighter uh, ran against the German lines rapidly and the Germans were too slow to get their own reinforcements to the front. in the last decades historians argued whether or not uh, Leto vorbeck might have been responsible for the German approach to encircle the indigenous forces at the Waterberg but the conclusion was that uh, he supported the overall strategy but he wanted to wait for reinforcement instead of attacking at once like the commanding uh, commander-in-chief general von Trota, did he, uh, von, uh, von Leto Forbeck fee- feared that an early attack without reinforcements would lead to a defeat. Um, in 1913, he was appointed uh, the commander-in-chief of the colonial forces of East Africa. And uh, when he arrived, he tried to modernize his force. Um, because uh, the troops he found were ill-equipped with uh, old-fashioned weapons, and he tried to um, implement new uh, weaponry like um, field guns and machine guns. But he was interrupted by the outbreak of the war. Uh, Initially, he wanted to use his troops to attack uh, the uh, railway line mentioned by Richard. Um, He wanted to attack the enemy's infrastructure in order to tie up as many troops uh, of the enemy in the area as possible. With his approach, uh, he tried to relieve uh, German troops in Europe, but he was in opposition with the uh, governor of the colony, Heinrich von Schnee. and Von Schnee wanted to uh, honor the Congo Treaty of 1885 Um, And he only wanted to use the colonial forces uh, to uh, preserve Germany's Africa as a colony for Germany. But in the end, um, Leto Vorbeck was uh, assertive and went on with his own plans. And after um, defending the city of Tanga against allied forces in the uh, early stages of the um, campaign, he implemented a guerrilla strategy because he was well aware that he couldn't fight uh, allied force in an open battle. And one asset he had to disrupt and tie up uh, enemy forces, of course, was uh, the cruiser of the East African Station, the the German East African Station, the light cruiser SMS Königsberg, which has only arrived in the colony on the 6th of June. 1914, so weeks prior to the war.
0: Thanks, Tim. Now, having set the scene, I'd like now to ask you both to explain how events unfolded. And here we'll concentrate on the naval side of the campaign, uh, especially the Königsberg. So, Tim Dobler, back to you. Can you tell us more about the Königsberg and its captain's say?
1: Well, as I mentioned already, the light cruiser Königsberg was the station cruiser of the German East African station. And she arrived only a few weeks prior to the assassination of the Austrian heir, and the situation in Europe got worse. She was built in Kiel and was launched in December 1905. And she was the first of four ships of the Königsberg class. She was about 114 meters long had a maximum speed of 24 knots, and she was armed with 10 6-inch guns and two torpedo tubes. Her crew consists of 322 uh, officers and ratings. Um, after she was commissioned, uh, she was assigned, firstly was assigned to the high seas fleet and uh, saw ac- escorting duties for various battlecruisers on different Occasions like the burial of the Swedish King Oscar II in 1907 and um, escort duties for the Imperial Yard on journeys to the Medi- Mediterranean. Um, in 1911, she went into her first refit and was recommissioned in 1913 with Commander Max love uh, as her new commanding officer. Um, when Commander Loew took over uh, the command in the final stages of her modernization, it was decided to assign her to the East African Station. Um, Commander Loew himself joined the Imperial Navy in uh, 1891, and I assume that he was a classmate of uh, Emden's Captain Commander Karl von Müller, as they share similar stations uh, in their training to become an officer. Um, however, after his training, Loaf had appointments in various types of ships and specialized in torpedo and mine uh, warfare, next to his watchkeeping duties. Once at the East African Station, Lof, uh left Koenigsb- uh, with Königsberg uh, for a survey tour in order to get familiar with the area and the waters of the colony. Um, but again, this tour was uh, interrupted by the outbreak of the war, and he had to return to the port of Dar es Salaam, the
0: col- colony's main port. Thanks, Tim. So how did Königsberg begin to uh, encounter the enemy in the first weeks, perhaps, of the war?
1: Um the first actions of Königsberg captain was to leave Dar es Salaam, the port, on the 31st of July, uh, 1914, to be at sea for possible outbreak of a war. Uh, the admiralty, admiralty, admiralty plans for Königsberg provided that she should commence commerce warfare in the Gulf of Aden and the Indian Ocean, as uh, the British sea lines of communication seemed to be profi- profitable targets. Also, it was assumed that the British, British forces would try anything to blockade, stop, or destroy German forces uh, in the event of a war. And therefore, Königsberg had to depart as soon as possible to escape what she did. Um, also, for the event uh, of a war, German steamers on the station had to load coal, and uh, had to rendezvous with Königsberg on previously arranged positions. Therefore, Commander Lowe tried to organize the supplies with coal in the days prior to his departure. Um, There was a coal storage in the colony, but it became obvious that he had to rely on coal supplies from neutral ports as well. Mainly he had in mind the ports of Portuguese East Africa and um, also South Africa. In the case, South Africa would remain neutral. For for this reason, uh, Königsberg's radius of operation shrunk dramatically as the war broke out and South Africa joined the war on Great Britain's side. Um, After Königsberg left her port, she sailed straight into a formation of the uh, Cape Squadron, she met uh, the British cruisers HMS Astrea, Pegasus, and Hyacinth, who uh, were sailing northbound, but she managed to trick them as she was faster as her opponents and sailed south before changing her course northwards again. Uh, when Commander Love received news about the outbreak of the war on the 5th of August, his advantage was that he already was in the Gulf of Aden, and the British didn't didn't know his position. But um, this was almost everything as he got uh, problems getting coal for his ship. Um, On the 6th of August, Königsberg encountered the British steamer, uh, the city of Winchester. She took her coal and sunk her. But after that, the situation with coal didn't get better. Without citing any shipping and a shortage in coal, Commander Loaf decided to sail into the refugee Rufiji Delta, south of uh, Dar es Salaam in Germany's Africa. His intention actually was to get coal from the colony and then return to sea after some minor repairs.
0: Thanks, uh, Richard. Uh How are things going for the British in this theatre? Can you tell us about the Battle of Zanzibar that follows? Yeah, so things
2: are are, are difficult for the British, I think it's fair to say. Um, And this is is initially at least primarily a result of of just the the confusion and the difficulties of of fighting a a global war. The overall British global strategy is that, that British, the Royal Navy can stop any forces coming out from Germany and therefore um, it, it doesn't actually need to deploy very strong forces into theatre, uh, into each of these global global theatres because it stops anything coming out from Germany. The problem with this, of course, is that on the outbreak of war, as with the case with the Konigsberg, there are uh, enemy forces which are already deployed and they need to be um, mopped up, as, as, as Winston Churchill, First Lord first of the Admiralty, would have referred, it to, referred to it as. Um, but there were also other pressures on, um, in this case, uh, King Hall, who's uh, CNC of the Cape Station. Um, he is under a lot of pressure from, from the War Office, from the Colonial Office, and from the Admiralty in London, and these were all kind of pulling in slightly different directions. And um, From the Cape, there's real concern about the fact that his forces are mainly deployed up up effectively the east coast of Africa, whereas the vast majority of British trade flows basically around the Cape and then onwards. Um, And so actually the area where the the most sort of dense British trade was, was was left unprotected. There were no British forces down there at all. Um, And this caused real concern in in the Cape. there is also issues coming up because the, the South Africans, as, as Tim says, they declare war um, on, on Germany, but they immediately go after German Southwest Africa. And so they want Royal Navy support um, and escorts in their campaign against German Southwest Africa. And because that's also part of, of the Cape station, um, King Hall is, is basically forced to provide um, a cruiser down in the Cape to to sort of look after trade flowing around the Cape, and another force um, to escort the the initial uh, initial South African operations against German Southwest Africa. So he has to basically withdraw the majority of his forces from um, the region where there is the greatest German threat, which is, is in East Africa. And in particular, against his better judgment, and he is, he's clearly very concerned about this and aware of this, he is forced to leave Pegasus, which is the weakest of his three cruisers in East Africa, and transfer his two sort of more powerful units, um, the two six-inch gun cruisers, SAP. Um, he instructs the com- commander of Pegasus, John Ingalls, um, that uh, he had to limit the scope of his operations and he wasn't effectively to go anywhere where he would be likely to run into to Konigsberg because the Konigsberg was a far more powerful vessel than Pegasus. Um, and in particular, he was supposed to stay close to, to Zanzibar. Um, Ingalls interprets this quite broadly um, and he basically goes up and down the coast of, of German East Africa for a little while um, and attempts to, to sort of enforce Specific truces, basically, with um, with the the towns and 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 cities of of, of German um, East Africa, uh, basically trying to prevent them from from um, establishing a kind of blockade, but it's not a legal blockade. So basically, trying to stop them um, importing goods. Um, but he returns, Pegasus returns to Zanzibar on the eighteenth of September, and it moors in the roads at, at Zanzibar, and. Ingalls posts a tug as a lookout ship in in the main channel. Um, And at 5 a.m. on the the 20th of September, um, Pegasus is is lying at anchor, and she is surprised by an unidentified vessel which rounds the headland and almost immediately opens fire on her. And this is, of course, the Konigsberg. Um, Pegasus returns fire, they're both four-inch gun Cruisers like and Königsberg's 4.1 inch, but they're both similar sort of um, uh, size armament in that respect. But the the difference in in between the the German four inch guns and and the British ones is, is marked. The Pegasus is about a decade older than the Königsberg, and is also sort of it's taken by surprise, and the guns are, are pretty much worn out. Um, and so. Basically, within 15 minutes, Pegasus was very badly damaged. Three out of her four starboard guns were, were knocked out, and Ingalls um, orders the colours to be struck. Almost immediately afterwards, then, um, Konigsberg sort of departs the scene, um, and Ingalls and his crew uh, attempt to uh, rescue the, um, the Pegasus by, by beaching her. Because um, she's struck four times, I think below um, below the waterline, so she's taking on water quite heavily. Um, and, but they managed to get one of one of the engines going, and they attempt to beach her, um, but this is unsuccessful, and she capsizes and sinks at around um, uh, sort of two in, in the afternoon. So she stays afloat for a little while, but um, uh, but but uh, she
0: sort of they don't actually manage to, to save her. Well, thanks for that dramatic description of a battle I'd never heard of. Thank you. Uh, Tim Döbler, after Königsberg's victory over HMS Pegasus, what does Forgetten captain Max Luth decide to do? Well, after the, her victory,
1: Königsberg didn't leave the scene. <clears throat> luth decided to stay in the area for a while, and he shelled uh, Zanzibar's newly commissioned wireless station. Two of four masts were destroyed and several local troops uh, were killed. After that, uh, Königsberg turned, uh, turned around, but while steaming south, Loew ordered to throw barrels filled with sand into the water to pretend Königsberg was lying mines in the channel. Uh, this distracted the, allies, the Allied forces once more, as they <clears throat> had to use the northern entrance uh, for some time before cleaning or clearing the, the, the southern uh, channel. Um, loof also decided uh, Königsberg um, to return to Germ- Germany's Africa again, uh, as his ship uh, still had engine problems. Uh, To refit his engines, he either had to go to the port of Dar es Salaam, where he would find a dock, uh, or he could go to the Rufiji Delta, where he could hide his ship. Uh, He chose the Delta again, as that was the best place to hide his ship. The necessary spare parts, however, had to be renewed in the dock in Dar es Salaam, for which Loaf could rely on The assistance of uh, the German authorities in the refugee district and um, um, in the end it turned out that all the spare parts had to taken from Königsberg uh, overland by uh, African carriers to the dock had to be renewed in the dock and had to go uh, had to taken back to the ship so uh, it was a large effort to get uh, his his engine um, refitted.
0: Hmm. Uh, Richard Dunley, leaving uh, Königsberg in the refugee delta for a moment, what's the Admiralty's response?
2: So Pegasus was a, a, a small and, and not particularly valuable warship, um, but this comes at a time for uh, Britain and for the Royal Navy where there's a sense that things are not going overly well. Um, coming into the war, there was an expectation that, that there would be a, a, a big battle in, in the North Sea between the, the Germans and the British, and the British would come out victorious. That was certainly what the British public expected, and to an extent, what quite a lot of naval officers expected as well. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. And as August goes into September, you then have a, a number of incidents where um, Uh, things don't necessarily go quite according to plan for the British, most obviously, the the loss of the the three cruisers um, to to, uh, sort of, uh, to U9 um, uh, in in the North Sea. But the the, the point I'm trying to make here is that Pegasus in and of itself is, is, is not that much of an issue, but it fits into a broader pattern that the Royal Navy is not necessarily doing particularly well at this point. Or he's not perceived to be doing particularly well, so it, it sparks a, a real reaction in in the Admiralty. The problem for the British is that actually the circumstances which um, which meant that Pegasus was left alone in in a region where there was known to be a superior German warship hadn't actually changed. So the, the there was a uh, now almost a revolt in South Africa. Um, one of the the leading South African generals, or, or sort of leading South African figures at least who'd um, been involved in, in the Boer War on the, the Boer side um, had questioned and, and basically uh, sort of re- risen up against British rule um, and suggested that the Boers would be fighting on the side of the Germans and not the British. Now this was quite quickly quashed, but for a very short period of time, it looked like there was potentially going to be real issues in South Africa um, and German Southwest Africa There were still um, attempts, sort of South African attempts, to to attack there. So there was real pressure on on the resources of the Cape Station. As such, the Admiralty shift um, East Africa out of the the, the sort of remit of the Cape Station and shift it into the East Indies Station. Um, And for for various reasons, over the next um, sort of few weeks to a a month, actually quite a considerable force ends up in, in the, the region uh, this is partly driven by by concern about the königsberg but also because uh, vessels which are assigned to escort troops reinforcements coming out of India um, and there's a, a real drive to reinforce British East Africa as I mentioned before there was real concern about German raids so one of the first things that happens in in August in September 1914 is they try and use troops in India to reinforce Um, British East Africa. But these these, um, convoys, troop convoys come across with escorts and uh, so you end up quite quickly with there being uh, in in sort of on the waters off off German East Africa. You've got three town class cruisers, Chatham, Weymouth and Dartmouth. You've got the older six inch gun light cruiser Fox and an old battleship HMS Goliath. So you've got quite a substantial force um, building up in, in this region. Um, the two latter vessels are, are not hugely useful because Konigsberg is, is considerably faster than either of them, but the three town-class uh, cruisers very quickly um, sort of mount a search up and down the coast. The coast of, of British, German um, and Portuguese uh, East Africa is, is an incredibly long uh, expanse. It's also um sort of studied with lots and lots of of rivers and deltas and natural harbors and other places where you can quite easily hide what is a relatively small warship Um, and added to this the difficulties around communications Um, this is not a heavily populated uh european at least um coastline and so the, the british Really struggled to try and, and work out where it was that the Konigsberg was hiding. Um, they, they knew quite reasonably well that she hadn't managed to sort of escape, um, but but they couldn't work out where she was uh, on this coastline. And then on, on the 30th of October, the captain of, of HMS Chatham receives some intelligence which suggests that Konigsberg is actually in, in the Refugee Delta. And so he goes to investigate. And he lands um, some, some men in in the region and makes contact with with some locals, and they confirm that the German cruiser is is lying up the up the delta. And so very quickly, the British then build up their force in in the region and establish basically a, a blockade off the coast um, of the the Rufid, or off the mouth of the Rufeji River.
0: Thank you. And I believe one of the reinforcements that the Admiralty summoned was the Australian cruiser HMAS Pioneer. Uh, Richard Dunley, tell us something of the ship and uh, Commander Thomas Biddlecombe.
2: Yes, so one of the reinforcements called upon is, is, is HMAS Pioneer. Um, so trying to sort of set this into, into a little bit of context again, because I think that the key thing from a British perspective here is, is to realise that what's going on is they're attempting to juggle their resources on a, on a global scale, and so all sorts of different things end up having knock on effects on on the ground in in East Africa. And following in particular here, it's, it's the battle of, of Coronel, um, where Von Chippey, uh destroys the the British force under Admiral Craddock. Um, this reinforcing what I was saying earlier about British um, uh, sort of concerns in a sense that the Royal Navy isn't doing very well. This Defeat really sends shockwaves through um, through the Admiralty and through British society more generally. Um, but the Admiralty, of course, then immediately attempt to try and redeploy their cruiser forces. For a start, they now know where Von Bay is, but also there's a sense that, that this threat needs to be dealt with and needs to be dealt with very, very fast. Um, as such, the, the relatively modern town class cruisers, which have been used to, to hunt for, for Konigsberg, were now at a premium. These are, are fast and reasonably heavily armed modern vessels, which can deal with the, the, the sort of light cruisers, which the, the, of the type sort of Konigsberg and Emden, um, these, these type of, of slightly smaller and, and lighter armed German light cruisers. So these are the perfect tools which the British need to try and, and, and use and, and sort of maximize their, their capability. And now that Konigsberg has been found and is bottled up, it means that the majority of these ships can can be redeployed elsewhere. The issue of course is that that actually, um, although Konigsberg is is bottled up, the British still need to be able to exercise their, their command of the sea in the region and enforce the blockade, which was sort of in the process of being worked up at this time. And in order to do that, they order two old P-class cruisers, uh, Pyramus and Pioneer, to reinforce the squadron. Pyramus comes down from, from the Persian Gulf, but obviously it's, it's Pioneer we're going to be focusing on here. So Pioneer, um, it's a really interesting little story uh, because, to be honest with you, she should have been heading towards a, a quiet retirement, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, she was a, a light. Cruiser armed with eight four-inch guns and and supposedly at least capable of twenty knots, um, mm-hmm. or at least she was when she was commissioned in nineteen hundred. Um, I think it's it's kind of difficult for us today to, when we look at the the very long lifespans of of modern warships, to appreciate the the extent of the the change between um, a sort of class of ship that were originally ordered in in, in eighteen ninety three, so the P class cruisers the the extent to which they were effectively obsolete by, by 1914. Um, these ships were, were well and truly uh, sort of no longer at the cutting edge. Um, she'd served for a number of years on the Australia Station as a Royal Navy ship before transferring in 1913 to the Royal Australian Navy as a seagoing training ship. So basically um, it was felt that her, her fighting days were over and she was being used um, uh, as a training ship. She was under the command of Thomas Biddlecombe, who was originally from, from Somerset and had spent uh, a number of years in, in the merchant navy before joining the colonial naval forces in, in 1906. He was clearly reasonably well regarded by, um, by some within in sort of the Australian naval establishment he was selected to pick up one of the new Australian destroyers, which was built, which were built in Britain before the war, um, and this would have been a, a reasonably uh, sort of prized command at the time. His wartime service, however, was I think it's fair to say difficult. Um, it appears from from the evidence that we've got that he was not hugely well liked when he was in the in command of Pioneer, and it was felt that he was um, sort of. Out for for his own glory rather than necessarily the good of the, the ship and the crew. Um, that was certainly the, the impression from the crew, and the impression from uh, sort of the um, his superiors at least were was that he he showed a, a lack of judgment at, at various occasions um, during operations in in East Africa. Um, and as such, uh, after and we'll we'll get to what, what happens to pioneer afterwards, but but um Biddlecombe ends up going to Britain to seek it to kind of restore his reputation and when he can't get um a post in the Grand Fleet he ends up uh sort of, um, volunteering to command a Q ship um, and he was killed in action on on a Q ship in nineteen seventeen
0: thanks Richard um now returning to, to Pioneer's career Tim Durbler Pioneer had some early successes in the war against German merchant ships. Can you explain? Uh, Yes,
1: uh, HMS Pioneer uh, was in Port Phillip Bay in Melbourne when war broke out. And uh, after that, she was sent to Fremantle to uh, patrol the Western Australian coast. She took up her duties on the 26th of August. And later that day, she encountered and captured uh, the German steamer Neumünster. Uh, off the coast of uh, Rottnest Island, ten days later she captured another German steamer, the Turingen, and uh, both uh, steamers were sent to Fremantle to uh, with price crews. and uh, Newminster was uh, renamed Cooi and was taken over by the Commonwealth uh, government. and Turingen, however, uh, was renamed Mura and was
0: converted into an Indian troopship. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Richard Dunley. I believe that if circumstances had been different, HMAS Pioneer may even have encountered the Endon. Can you tell us about that? Might have been.
2: Yeah. So this is um, uh, one of those interesting might have bins, and I think also points to to what I was saying a little bit earlier about um, uh, Pioneer being coming towards the end of her her lifespan. So um, Pioneer, as as Tim was saying, was on the uh, operating on the western coast of Australia. Um, and at the time in in sort of October, um, the first convoy of the first sort of AIF uh, um, troops was assembling um, off off the coast, and the the escort for it was was being built up, um, including of course um, uh, a Japanese large Japanese warship. Um, but one of the the or um, Pioneer was initially ordered to, to act as, as part of this escort. Um, it's not entirely clear what exactly she was supposed to do as part of this escort. Um, she was definitely the, the weakest and slowest um, uh, sort of of the, the, the cruisers uh, allocated to, um, to, to escort the, the convoy. Um, but she was supposed to proceed as far as the Cocos Islands before returning to the Pacific. Um, now, relatively early on, engine trouble forces her to, to turn back and she returns to to Australia. Um, but of course, it's when the convoy was actually passing uh, the Cocos Islands that they received the signal um, from the wireless station on on the islands that Emden was, was attacking. And this was, of course, the the moment this was HMS Sydney's moment, um, when she then goes and and of course destroys um, Emden. Now, whether or not Pioneer would have ended up going to the Cocos Islands first and and, and bumping into to, to Emden, uh, we'll, we will never know. Um, and I think in some ways Pioneer's crew will probably be quite grateful. Um, judging by the fate of, of HMS Pegasus um, when faced against the Königsberg, um, one could not expect a hugely different outcome of sort of putting Pioneer up against uh, Emden.
0: Mm. So I think
2: this is uh, uh, probably a, a moment of, of good fortune for the Pioneer in that respect.
0: And indeed for the Royal Australian Navy, was what a terrible moment to have opened the Great War on, with the destruction of Pioneer, but instead it was Sydney's triumph. Now returning to, to East Africa. So HMAS Pioneer arrives in Zanzibar early in February to reinforce the blockade of the Königsberg. Tim Durbler, How were things in Konigsberg, and was there any way that the ship could have escaped the predicament that it's in?
1: Well, um, Commander Lowe managed to hide his ship in the refugee delta very well. And one reason why the British forces didn't know about her whereabouts was that he used to manage, or he used to trick the Allies. From time to time, he ordered uh, the use of wireless in varying volumes to pretend to, to be at sea with Königsberg, and the British only learned of his presence in the Delta when they intercepted uh, the German steamer uh, president in the port of Lindy. Uh, Richard mentioned the uh, in, uh, the information they received. Um, they uh, The source of the information was a chart, a map of uh, the area with accurate accurate water depths. And uh <clears throat> from these depths they could assume that uh um there were parts of the Delta that can be used by light cruiser like Königsberg. Like uh, Richard mentioned, um HMS Chatham uh showed up in the Delta and um her sailors uh confirmed the information um that Königsberg uh, was hiding in the uh, in the Delta in the, uh, behind mangroves. Uh, the Germans on the other hand observed the actions of uh, Chatham's cutters and um, as uh, Commander Lowe earlier ordered to build a line of observation points and trenches in the Delta to defend his ship. Um, he got assistance in that from naval reserve uh, forces uh, and volunteers from the steamers from Dar es Salaam, uh, and which arrived in the Delta in September, late September 1940. Uh, they explored the Delta and even managed to install telephone cables between the main uh, observation points in the Delta. In the further course of the campaign, the Germans re- reinforced their posi- position several times, and in the end, they had a well functioning. A communication system. Uh, added to this was a kind of psychological warfare in late November 1914. Uh, Commander Loaf had almost no chance of either escape into the Indian Ocean or to uh, get supplies delivered by sea. Uh, so he ordered to light fires at night to simulate um, a ship in order to keep the Allied forces alarmed. Probably the last attempt to receive the necessary materials and coal was in April 1914, when the steamer Rubens uh, was equipped with coal and spare parts uh, and managed to leave uh, the port of Dar es Salaam. Uh, Before uh, Rubens could enter the Delta, she was destroyed by Allied forces. <clears throat> so, uh, in the end, um, Lowe faced uh, a lack of um, spare parts, a lack of coal, and I assume that he was well aware that uh, there was yeah, almost no chance of his ship escaping this blockade.
0: Thank you. Now, Richard, what's going on on the British side of these operations against Königsberg? So
2: the British position is is um, sort of an interesting one, because it, it it kind of speaks to to their priorities more, more broadly. So once the British have um, have found Konigsberg, the, um, the, the commander of, of, of the three light cruisers, or the, the senior, senior captain of the three light cruisers, gets an order from, um, from the Admiralty, which basically lists his the three priorities that the Admiralty have. The first is not letting the Konigsberg escape. The second is releasing the vessels that the Admiralty want to be able to be used elsewhere. And it's the third of the priorities, the least important priority is the destruction of Konigsberg. Um, so once the British have her pinned down, it becomes less of a, um, initially at least, it, it's less of a concern about destroying her. Um, now, of course, the uh, the forces on on the scene uh, sort of quite quickly begin to, to to make attempts to um uh to to sort of destroy uh, the the Königsberg, and the initial attempt is is effectively to to penetrate up the up the river with one of the light cruisers and to to bombard her. Um, but as as Tim has suggested, the um, the Germans begin to make very uh, sort of Uh, elaborate defences. And one of the things that the British are are sort of far from certain of is whether or not they've mined the entrances to to the river. And so the British are very concerned about effectively venturing too far up. um, And they don't have hugely good maps or charts of, of, of the river. And so they are the the captains are, are really, really concerned about basically managing to, to lose one of the, the light cruisers in, in the process of ever attempting to destroy the Konigsberg. Um, and whilst this, this sort of initial attempt to, to bombard Konigsberg is going on, um, Konigsberg actually ends up moving a little bit further up river um, and further away from, from, from the British. And this effectively renders any further attempts for them to. Bombard uh, her using ocean-going ships, um, uh, sort of redundant. There's an attempt to try and get hold of, of a French um, gunboat, which was in in the East Indies, um, because it was felt that that she had a well, she had a ten-inch gun, um, and it was believed that that she might be useful in, in destroying Königsberg. Um, but this came to nothing when it, it became clear that, that the the French had actually disarmed her only recently. Um, uh, and sort of mounted i think mounted the gun um, ashore so so that was was no longer an option um and so you see over the the months and it is months that the uh that the British are effectively mounting a um, a blockade off the the mouth of the rafiji River you see a, a number of different uh attempts to to try and and, and destroy Konigsberg. Um, one of them was an attempt to use the, the ship's boats, um, and particularly I think it was uh, one of Goliath's cutters, um, and to equip them with uh, 14-inch torpedoes and dropping gear. And, and so effectively um, proceeding upriver with um, these small boats and using um, torpedoes and, and not launching them through a torpedo tube but, but you basically just drop them over the side of a small boat. Um, and so they, they they make an attempt to do this, but um, again, coming back to, to Tim's point, the Germans had dug in on on either side, or certainly on 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 one side of the the river, um, and so they open up with uh, heavy machine guns, and this causes one of the the torpedoes to discharge um, uh, sort of prematurely, and it very quickly drives the British back out of the the river delta. Um, they sort of get get driven back with the tail between their legs. Um, although it, it sort of speaks to the, the the longer traditions of attempting to to cut out a warship or or, or something similar. Um, there is also a um, uh, an attempt relatively early on to bring up a, a seaplane from South Africa to sort uh, of basically mount reconnaissance of, of Königsberg and see what's going on. Um, that. Sort of works, but the the seaplane keeps breaking down, and then eventually crashes. Um, and a little bit later, the they bring out a couple of seaplanes from from Britain, um, and there is uh, an attempt to try and, and bomb Königsberg, but basically the 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 planes are not really man enough for the job, um, and particularly they really struggled in tropical conditions, um, and so you you end up. With these kind of schemes not really working. Um, but, but the British do manage to get some, some decent uh, aerial reconnaissance uh, going. Mm,
0: um,
2: in, uh, on the, the, the 1st of March, um, a, a proper blockade of the, um, the East German East, Afri- German East African coast is, is mounted, so a, a legal blockade uh, is established. And Pioneer is, is really an essential part of the, the force um, uh, enforcing this blockade. Um, and she, she ends up uh, spending a lot of time sailing up and down and uh, stopping things like Dows and other vessels in an attempt to try and seize contraband um, and stop resources getting into the German, the land forces in, in German East Africa. Um, Tim's already mentioned the German supply ship Rubens. Um, which the British do manage to stop manage sort of getting to, to Konigsberg and supplying with with her with coal or, or um spare parts. But she is actually she's not destroyed particularly well. She is beached um and whilst the um King Hall, the, the, the British Admiral believes that she's destroyed, um the, the Germans manage to get a huge number of, of, of or a huge amount of um small arms and things out of, 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 of her. And these continue to to sort of support the the German guerrilla campaign in East Africa through much of the war, um, and this causes a great deal of tension between the Admiralty and the War Office.
0: Thank you, um, Tim Dobler. Would you like to finish the story of what happens to Königsberg and the, and its crew? Uh,
1: yes. Uh... In July 1915, uh, the Admiralty uh, launched the first attack by uh, monitors um, who entered the refugee delta to destroy um, the Königsberg. The first attack on on the 6th of July was unsuccessful as um, the monitors were stopped um, by the German forces. And a second attack was launched on the 11th uh, of July, 1915. And this one was uh, the successful one. Um, The Germans received several uh, hits, um, which led Commander Lohf to uh, order to abandon his ship. And before the last uh, personnel left, uh, they um, sunk Königsberg in the Delta. They took everything uh, they could carry with them and waded uh, ashore after the battle. The Germans inspected the ship and found that the, her artillery was still functional at once uh, they decided to dismantle the guns and use them as artillery for the colonial force uh, the the salvage, the salvage squad worked until uh, december to uh, uh, September uh, sorry. September to secure everything from the wreck that was functional. Königsberg remaining crew joined uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Leto Forbeck's colonial force, including Commander Loaf. And at first they formed a standalone unit within the colonial force. But with the war getting longer, Königsberg officers and rating became fewer in numbers. So they had to reinforce other companies Uh, Another problem was the conflict between uh, Leto Vorbeck and Loew. Although Loew took over command of a unit um, of the colonial force, uh, his superior still was uh, the governor, uh, Heinrich von Schnee. And uh, like von Schnee, um, Loew supported um, the approach to try everything to preserve the colony for the German Empire. And this disagreement didn't end when uh, Leto Forbeck and Lof returned to Germany. Um, they both published books uh, after the war on the East African campaign and blamed uh, the other one for misjudging the situation. And uh, in the end, just around 40 men of Königsberg, formerly 322 officers and men returned to Germany. And took part in a big welcoming parade in Berlin in early 1919. And um Commander Loew uh, left the Navy after the war, but um worked as a as a publisher uh, writing books, uh, whereas um Leto Forbeck uh stayed in the army forces until 1920 and then um, try to uh, destroy the, um, the German democracy in participating various uh, coups and rebellions against uh, the democratic uh, government.
0: Mm, thank you. Um, Richard told us that uh, Commander Thomas Biddlecombe was killed in 1917, commanding a Q-ship for the pioneer. So the Pioneer um, plays
2: a, a, a small but, but quite important part in, in the events that, that Tim's just described. Um, she ends up bombarding the um, the German defenses at the mouth of the river to enable the monitors to to proceed upriver um, sort of with limited opposition and her crew are involved in, in things like they, they man one of the, the Maxim guns on one of the monitors and some of the crew are involved in in, in um, crewing a some of the tugs, which are there on scene to tow the monitors back out if the monitors end up getting stuck. So the pioneers sort of in the thick of it, um, and the pioneers' crew are in the thick of it as the 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 Königsberg is destroyed. Um, but this is kind of the the high point. This is the the exciting bit um, because immediately afterwards um, they. They they think they're going to go home soon, Um, but actually they get stuck on on continued blockade operations off the um, the East, Germany's African coast. Um, As as has been been pointed out by by Tim, the the German land forces are very successful at managing to avoid destruction. And as such, the the British continue to mount a, a naval blockade trying to basically stop any uh, reinforcements or any supplies and food and things getting to the, the German guerrillas, um, but this is is not particularly exciting work. Um, the pioneer was was not a hugely um, pleasant place to be. I don't think by this point um, she was old. She wasn't hugely seaworthy. She kept um, uh, having sort of major uh, mechanical problems, um, and the crew desperately wanted to to get back to uh, get back to Australia. In fact, she had actually, by um, by the the end of her cruise, she had spent far more time at sea um, in, a, in a single sort of operation than than any other Australian ship during the war. So uh, initially, the the Admiralty say that she can pay off in in uh, that that she can get uh, relieved in in February nineteen sixteen uh, in order to return to Australia, but this order is actually later um, uh, sort of uh, rescinded. And she ends up having to stay on throughout much of, of, of 1916, operating uh, off the, the East African coast on this, this sort of interminable blockade duty, uh, chasing dows in particular up and down the coast. It's not actually until August 19, um, 1916 that that pioneer is, is finally relieved and she's allowed to return to uh, Australia. Um, and it, it's not until October uh, 1916 that she actually gets back to Australia and her crew go on to, uh, to commission the new light cruiser Brisbane, which was uh, completing in, in Sydney at the time.
0: Thank you. Um, before I ask uh, Tim and Richard for their final thoughts, it's just, just occurred to me that we, I began this broadcast by mentioning the, the film The African Queen. But while Tim and Richard were speaking, I remembered another film, Shout at the Devil, 1976 film starring Lee Marvin and Roger Moore, based on a a Wilbur Smith novel, which in fact is about the destruction of a German cruiser hiding up a river in German East Africa. Um, It's uh, not destroyed by British monitors, but in fact, by a hard drinking American ivory poacher played by Lee Marvin. And uh, it's described by some critics as uh, a big, dumb, silly movie that's impossible to dislike. Well, I've seen it and I can tell you I disliked it, but I thought it would be interesting to mention uh, another fictional take on the, the naval war in East Africa. But with that uh, small digression aside, can I ask Tim Dobler and Richard Dunley to offer some final thoughts about HMS Pioneer and the East African naval campaign? First of all, Tim.
1: It's really difficult to say if uh, von Lettow Vorbeck really was successful in this approach in tying up Allied forces, but Königsberg was. And um, that was, um, yeah, the the um the work of uh, her commanding officer, uh, Commander Loaf, who um, has had a really seemed to have a really adaptive uh, way of leadership. So he just arrived weeks prior to the outbreak of the war and had to um, work with uh, the few information he gathered in that time. And then he had to um, uh, give up his ship, uh, most, mostly give up his ship, and then try to defend it as a land force. So uh, it, it's quite impressive to see how um, different uh, the, the uh, warfare areas were for him. And how he managed to uh, defend his ship and his um, his uh,
0: company. Thank you. And Richard, your final thoughts?
2: So I think it's it's a really interesting little um, uh, campaign, and the 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 case of the of the Pioneer and of of, of the Kronigsberg um, sort of speak to to, to issues which I think uh, reverberate down today in terms of, of, of naval campaigns, one point which I would draw out is, is kind of what, what Tim was, was suggesting there, and that's the power of um, of effectively a fleet in being, or in this case, a, a ship in being. The, the Konigsberg, by simply existing, tied up huge amounts of, of British resource um, and effort and time um, over a very long period. Um, she's the, the last of, of the German uh, raiders to be destroyed. Um, and the, the amount of, of time and effort is far out of proportion with with anything that, that she actually achieved in terms of uh, destruction of commerce. But the fact that that she still existed meant that she posed a threat. And the, I think the other side of that and, and, and coming to the, the pioneer itself, I think it speaks to the, the importance of of actually of having vessels um, in order to, uh, that don't necessarily need to be the most technically advanced or, or um, actually capable of, of taking on the highest level of, of enemy combatants. Um, although of course, um, the fate of the Pegasus speaks to the, the, the problems of this, but low capability vessels, which can still actually operate and exercise command of the sea, are still vital to any kind of, of, of campaign which is, is, is reliant on, on that exercise. And I think that's what Pioneer did here. She was part of a, a broader picture, um, but she was a force which actually enabled Britain to exercise its command of the sea in terms of things like the blockade, um, and in doing so, had an impact on, on the broader war.
0: Thank you. Well, we've had an interesting time discussing the East African naval campaign. Um, My thanks go to Tim and to Richard Dunley again. Um, That's all we have time for today. But can I tell you that this podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us, and for more information on the Australian Naval History podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now. Thank you.